1: Hello and welcome to You're On Mute, a new podcast series conceived by BBI, the UK's first Black Business Institute, boosting prospects for underprivileged Black entrepreneurs by promoting equivalent access to funding structures and essential business networks. I'm your host, Lord Michael Hastings, and over the next 16 weeks, me and my fellow hosts will be interviewing an incredible lineup of leaders, icons, and changemakers makers ascertain how they balance the importance of commercial performance versus societal impact. The killing of George Floyd and the COVID-19 pandemic has highlighted racial disparity has disproportionately affected the globe's Black communities. And here, we discuss the importance of balancing both commercial performance and societal impact. And as we all know, with great power comes huge responsibility. And this series looks at how those in positions of influence can use their status as a force for good. Our time together is broken down into three sections, each one punctuated by the guest's favourite piece of music, singling different stages of their life. And joining me today is Jason Tarry, CEO of Tesco's UK and Ireland. Welcome, Jason. Thank you very much, Michael. Very nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So take us into your first track that sits in your heart. Soft Cell, say hello, wave goodbye
0: yeah it's um it's not a particularly uh, obvious piece actually but when I, when i grew up in um in a small village in kent uh, we looked forward every monday night to our youth club um evening at, at the local town hall and there was a disco area and this was in that showing my age now this was i was a, a young teenager and this was in the early 80s and there was quite an emergence of lots of different musical styles in the 80s that i, I think made it a really interesting time and i Particularly was taken with the sort of new romantics. And at the forefront of that were bands such as Human League, Depeche Mode, and first and foremost, I think Soft Cell. And everybody knows and sings along to Tainted Love. But actually, my very favorite track from their seminal album, Nonstop Erotic Cabaret, is Say Hello, Wave Goodbye.
1: <laughs> very beautiful. Those must have been lovely memories of your childhood. What did you enjoy when you were young? Um, I, had a, I had a I would say a fairly idyllic
0: childhood so um, very uh, I came from a very modest background um, both my parents worked my father worked for the local council at the at the fire brigade um, sort of uh, fitting out fire engines literally almost opposite our house and my mother spent well she's, she's full-time uh, looking after my sister and I but actually also worked seasonally in the sort of Quite a rural area a lot of fruit growing so she helped um out in the fields in the summer so many of my summers were spent playing in the dirt with other children uh, at that particular point and uh we didn't have much um but but an unbelievable love from my parents uh, all the way through my childhood and yeah there wasn't a lot around us but you know we made we, we we sort of made our own amused ourselves and did all sorts of things around and about the community and i yeah, I had, a, I had a really, I had a really sheltered, but very enjoyable childhood. Um,
1: yeah. Well, you had a lot in having the great love of your family. And um, I know you you mentioned that you've you've had uh, a number of a number of significant hero type role models. American, I know, Barry Sheen, John Wayne, <laughs> Clint Eastwood. But of course, your father, was there anyone in the UK that was a that was a hero to you?
0: No, well, I think uh, you mentioned a few there. And of course, uh, like many sons, I very much looked up to my father. You know, he's a very strong figure in our household. And many of the interests that he had, uh, I ended up up sort of following. So motorcycling was a big thing of his. um, And that's why I would probably point to my... um, so sort of my biggest hero when I was growing up was the motorcyclist Barry Sheen, who was from Southeast London, so not too far away from me in Kent. And obviously, we had there's a very famous racing track called Brands Hatch that was about half an hour drive from our house. And you know, we had a kind of annual pilgrimage there at Easter for the races, the transatlantic races, the British against the Americans. And Barry Sheen was my my hero, and I was lucky once to meet him when I was a young ten or eleven years old and get his um, get his autograph and, and then the other things that my father handed down to me so my sort of love of fishing so um which I do with uh, one of my sons is very keen as well so some rural pursuits but also just some things that uh that that he that he loved and and I ended up enjoying as well and that, and that's why Barry Sheen was my hero but you're right I did I, I used to watch a lot of cowboy films and I loved John Wayne and I loved Clint Eastwood I just thought they were um Powerful, charismatic, you know, yeah, do, doing good over evil and uh, triumphing against adversity. It sort of really appealed to me somehow.
1: That's a theme of your life, which is actually really, really, really remarkable and beautiful. A- higher education is what kind of kicked you up into the next level of, of your life. What, what did you study? Where up. did you go
0: yeah, no, so um, I, I went to a very small uh, rural primary school. There's only 80 of us there. In the final year, there was only 10 of us. Um, so it, it felt very personal, very individual. Everybody knew everyone, the teachers knew you. After that, I ended up going to a big comprehensive school on the edge of Maystone, um, which was a bit more of a challenge. You know, I went from being a big fish in a small pond to, to really being, um, you know, a small fish in a big pond and suddenly having to. Travel on a school bus with lots of people i didn't know, and it was quite daunting, but I was lucky enough after a couple of years to be um, just about selected to go to uh, maystone grammar school so Kent has always been conservatively held and has retained its its um, selective uh, grammar schools and um, and at that time it wasn't about an eleven plus exam it was about sort of continuous assessment and basically, I was told that. 13 I was borderline and I could go if I wanted to but I might struggle and there was this sort of big debate in the house so my mother very much wanted the best for me and said I should go for it and my father said look we don't you know we don't go to the grammar school it's not what we do you know we're a working class family and um but I went and uh and uh, yeah I was I, I guess I, I was what you would call bang average <laughs> so I was average at everything nothing good at anything but actually, just the—I tell you what—there's a real privilege of being in a school where you are selected on your ability. So even if you are even if you are um, you don't stand out in any way, shape, or form, the very fact that you're already there breeds in you a sense of confidence, and also surrounds you with people who uh, have a you know have a certain uh, performance and intellect standard, which that that, that really sort of helps and. And I think that was that was a privilege um, after that. And I really enjoyed it. I had a it was a boys school, um, but we used to get the bus in a public bus into town, which took about an hour. And the girls from the girls school got on it as well. So it's fabulously sociable on the bus on the way to school. You to really look forward to the bus there and the bus back home. They were the highlights of the day. And often, of course, you would find that you might miss the odd lesson at the start or end of day in order to meet the girls from the school with your best friends so I absolutely loved it and um didn't really want to leave enjoyed it immensely made some lifelong friends and uh and and at that but I was I was going to go to uh, go to work because again nobody in my family either on my my mother or my father's side had um had ever been to onto further education university or even a even a college and uh, it wasn't really the dumb thing but um my best friend, Graham, was going to Sheffield University, and I, I had that awful, you know, halfway through my final year, had that awful fear of missing out, FOMO. So I, um, I sort of had a look round, decided I wanted to do something a bit more vocational that might lead to work. Found a place that was only 50 miles away from where he was in Sheffield and thought, great, I can go there and see him every weekend or something, which was Stoke-on-Trent. I went to North Staff's Polytechnic, which is now Staffordshire University. And that's probably uh, that kind of fear of missing out decision was probably the best one I made in my life. Suddenly going from a small rural community in Kent to a large well a city in the midlands with all of its um differences and diversity thrown into a sort of melting pot of of people from all walks of life and all parts of the country um and we were there for four years with two two year two uh, six month placements and again i really didn't want to leave i loved every moment of it made lifelong friends and almost everything since then has not quite measured up to those um those brilliant days where every every day is an event you learn something new, and you're you know you're on your own with a level of freedom that you never would have really expected so yeah I and and in the end I knuckled down in the final year and managed to get a half decent degree so uh, yeah really um, I I had a really good time (laughs) when I really loved education I really loved uh, the whole uh, not so much I, I I didn't enjoy working you know doing homework or really enjoy the lessons that much i just really enjoyed being there with everyone and the social side of it and uh yeah um that's a very long answer to a quite a short question sorry Michael.
1: and and is that carried away you can
0: tell how i feel about it yeah
1: i I can tell it's really deep into your positive psyche your well-being's filled up by it. it's wonderful and and obviously you met people so many different colors and cultures for the first time in some cases
0: well, you know, absolutely. I mean, when I was growing up in um, in in, in, a, in the small village, there was basically one family that wasn't white British. That was a, a Asian family who ran the local uh, restaurant, and um, and sort of seen with a little bit of kind of slight fear and slight, you know, sort of uh, 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 trepidation, really. Um people just sort of kept kept out kept they kept themselves themselves, and we kept out of their way, you know. And that's that's you know. A, British uh, village in Kent in the, in the 1980s. When I went to Stoke-on-Trent, of course, it was completely different. You know, I'm, I I'm met the very first um, child of a broken home. I've never come across that before. You know, I ended up on a course with colleagues from, you know, South Asia, East Asia, um, Black uh, colleagues and and... You know, and and people that clearly were also um, gay as well. So, I, you know, I never really—I know it sounds ridiculous in this day and age—but I'd never come across that before. Let alone the fact, you know, there were Scottish people, there Irish people, who from the north, people from the south, people from everywhere. So it was—it um, was—it was a real eye opener for me, um, and uh, and actually very helpful in terms of you know broadening my horizons opening up the possibilities of the world and and uh and exposing me to cultures and backgrounds and people that you
1: know i probably wouldn't have done if i well i definitely wouldn't have done if i stayed where i was
0: so you say uh, it was
1: um would you say it was formative to helping you think about the whole inclusion diversity equity agenda
0: i i mean since you've just asked the question I, i guess it must have been i think my um I think one of the things it did give me that you know very very quickly appealed to me um, was was wanting to understand experience and be curious about other cultures and and other lives and other um, lively uh, you know ways of living you know and, and for exa- for example as soon as I left university rather than go to work I I, w- I went travelling because I wanted to go to I wanted to see the world I wanted to and, and I didn't want to just visit right so. I went away for a year but you know i had a work visa for australia um i worked dare i say illegally in america because i didn't have a green card but what i found was what i enjoyed most is where i i I stayed somewhere and i went to work and i met people from you know from that country or from that region in the country and saw them up close and personal during their everyday lives rather than you know travel around with a backpack visiting you know monuments and um go sightseeing and that sort of thing which is which is wonderful right but it doesn't really get you into to where you are and um particularly you know really utter, one of the other things i really got exposed to you know i was in sydney and what was really fascinating for me was working in a cosmetics factory and seeing the communities of indigenous australian and also actually uh, New Zealand uh, communities of New Zealand, particularly New Zealand Maori, who basically were doing a lot of the jobs that you know these sort of um, highly manual jobs, factory-based jobs, and uh, and again, sort of complete eye opener versus wandering around Sydney Opera House or you know or or you know going to Ayers Rock or something. So you know, I um, I guess you're right. Uh, you know, thinking out loud and answering the question out loud. I think it, it probably did give me a Taste for wanting, being curious, and wanting to to see how um, see, know,
1: experience other cultures. And talking of that curiosity, I think, if I'm right, that while you were in Australia, you saw an advert to work for Tesco's. Well, I, I just got back. I, I tell you what happened. I um, it's one of those things
0: where I love I love my time there, and I thought um, I don't really yeah, I have my parents and my sister at home, but I don't have any other ties. Wouldn't it be wonderful to go and live in Australia? And uh, I looked into it, and the only way that I could do that and work was if, was if I um, had a professional trade, professional qualification or trade or relatives already residing in Australia who would sponsor me. I didn't have relatives. Um, I did business studies at um, staff's uh, polytechnic, staff's university, and there was a module in finance. Now, finance wasn't my strength. In fact, I failed my equivalent of maths GCSE the first time round, so not my strength at all but I could see that it was the easiest step towards a professional qualification by studying to be uh, an accountant and uh, and so the moment I got back to the UK I thought well how am I going to find a way to get and, and I was looking around for jobs and I saw Tesco advertising and obviously knew who Tesco were which is unusual <laughs> when you come out of university looking at jobs you're trying to sort of no idea. You see these company names, you've got no idea what they do. So, uh, and I knew what Tesco did, so that was good. And I looked at, and it was a good training package, and there was a company car, and I looked at where they were, and they were based sort of on the edge of North London, in Cheshunt. And uh, I'm a big Arsenal fan, so I thought, oh, good. I can live in North London, go and see Arsenal's home matches every other week, and uh, get qualified with Tesco, and then go off to Australia. So, um which is why I, I, I well actually i got rejected first time and uh, they rang me back the next week and said actually we've got another job now hasn't got a company car but everything else is the same would you like to join i said yeah okay so um so i joined tesco 31 years ago as a graduate trainee in finance and clearly as you know when you're young things change you know you get to experience and see different things and uh And uh, I didn't go back to Australia and I didn't emigrate. I did pass my finance exams, but I'm still with Tesco 31 years later. So, yeah, that's what happened.
1: That's beautiful. That's a wonderful way to come (laughs) round to the journey that you've been on. Let's go into your second piece of music, Stone Roses, Fool's Gold. Now, What's the the lyric there? Well, 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 here you
0: go. So it's it's not so much the, the lyrics, it's the fact that, um my best friends I, I sort of fell in with a group at university who were from manchester Um my you know t- two of my very best friends went to school together in south manchester and towards the end of my time at staffs poly the sort of there's a real I mean there's always been a very strong music scene in manchester but it really emerged on a national scale and a number of uh of, of bands emerged where where man i think it ended up being called Bad- Manchester, and it was all based on this sort of uh on this sort of live uh music dance uh phenomenon uh the hacienda and so on and stone rose is one of those key bands that emerged from that time and so we used to listen to it quite a lot and uh, the year after we left uni we uh, we went on one of those package holidays to Lorette de Mar in Spain and I remember before we were going out to, um, you know, for the evening, we we put on the stone roses and sort of gee ourselves up and Paul's Gold was out, one of our favorites. So there you go, in your twenties, kind of
1: making your way in life. Uh, how did you know, it make you, f- like, how did the music make you feel? Was it like?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, no, it's sort of, um, it would uh, instill you, funny enough, it's, it's music that really gets you going. You know, you kind of feel the rhythm you speed up slightly, and it imbues you with energy. So uh, and confidence, actually, and confidence. Or maybe that was, maybe that that was the the drinking that was going alongside listening to it we go out. could have been a bit of both. But, yeah. you're,
1: you're very real as you're right. just. <laughs> let's go back to your your first memories of, of Tesco's and your initial yeah. bosses. You you had um, initial bosses were female bosses, and yeah, how was that yeah. for you?
0: Yeah, well. Uh, yes so you're right um, my gosh my I think three out of the first or maybe four out of the first five um, leaders that I worked for in Tesco were female leaders and um, which I think was quite unusual actually at, at the time quite unusual per se but actually I think I was quite lucky in terms of the, the people that I worked for um, and it I, I, look i how was it? Uh, I really enjoyed it. you know, I kind of I had a good relationship with my um with my bosses. They were very encouraging of me um, I wanted to please them. I wanted to do a good job for them and and sort of that 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 worked that worked both ways really um but it is fair to say you know back in those days the the culture was generally more male more um macho um it's a fairly you know it's it's, it's 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 as you know i mean retail is fast moving competitive and you know you, you needed to be on it in terms of trying to make sure you're moving the whole thing forward so i guess it was it was unusual that i ended up with um you know the two marys allison and sandra as being my bosses at that time but you know it was uh I actually found it, I actually found it, I found it easier, I I found it, I found I could be more relaxed than with male bosses that I had, where it was much more, uh, much less, much less able to have a proper open conversation, much less able to talk about what was really going on, much less able to, um, to, to lose face in any conversation, let alone any particular initiative, which I, I suppose in. reflection isn't
1: really surprising but 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 that that's how it was and you quickly uh, you're on a you're on a graduate um, accelerator scheme it's clear that Tesco saw you as great talent and they wanted to develop you and wanted to give you lots of opportunities because I mean you made it well in fuel and Mm. you could make it elsewhere so you went on to do internationally connected roles
0: yes um I think if, if i if i sort of look back to to how i was considered it is it's true i think i was seen as high potential but also slightly different to many of my peers and colleagues who who would sort of very traditionally come through a a one function and done well in all of that and and move forward and um and also sort of good track records of performance i think i was I was seen as slightly different, you know, I come from finance, I come from a sort of a service support background. So I had quite a different outlook on working with people, much much less the centre of the decision making, more around the how do I sort of engage with people to help make the right decision rather than sort of focus on using um you know using sort of the the power of the role i used data a lot because of my finance to try and support my arguments to do it that way which was quite different at the time and also i think because i had done different things and that curiosity that i that i developed through university and particularly when i was traveling you know i was up for things so people saw me as being adaptable flexible and you know happy to try different things And, and on that basis um and could turn my hand to them on that basis i was asked to sort of work on this sort of brand new team where we were looking at supporting our international businesses that we were developing and helping support them in capability development and looking at opportunities to to work more effectively across the countries now of course that was fantastic because it's like an internal consultant role and you know so i was going out to these wonderful places thailand south korea which is quite the most different place i'd ever been to my it's, it's different to anywhere you'd ever been central europe you know that not recently you know uh, we're, we're not communists we're coming into the um into mainland europe those markets are opening up in a way we've not seen before so working in those going to see those countries those cultures working with lots of local people that we'd hired or acquired but actually, you had low knowledge of modern retailing and helping build their capability to do that. But in, in order to do that, trying to understand again the culture, the backgrounds, the how do you connect with someone well in Poland or Thailand or Malaysia or South Korea. So I really, I really enjoyed that. Learned a lot being able to do that. And I actually was asked to sort of set up our sourcing. Sorry. It was already set up, take over our sourcing operation in the Far East, where we were sourcing a lot of products from China and South Asia and actually close to the home as well, which again gave me another whole kind of uh, uh, world of opportunity to explore new cultures and, and people from different backgrounds. So it was, it was brilliant, really good, fantastic. What would you
1: say, given what you said about connecting with people and about working across borders and boundaries and countries and languages, what was the the germ of the bright idea you learned from all of that? How did you make these connections work i you know I actually think at the heart of it all, we're individual
0: human beings and if you can just um work on on uh you know the person in front of you not not where they're from what language they are what color they are whatever it's just you you you're making a connection on a human level with another human being is the basis of everything in my in my opinion and actually underneath a lot of the the differences in background culture and and all the other things um there are there appear to be some innate human needs that you know that sociability that connection that ability to be able to um to laugh, that ability to be able to connect on things like family or on you know it's quite it's quite interesting and I think and I think um you know I work on the basis that if you can find common ground if you can put yourself in other people's shoes and understand where they're coming from and try and find what you have in common and what the opportunities are uh, there's there's many more things yeah, you know, we're trying to do the same thing let's look for what those opportunities are rather than rather than focus on the differences. I think makes makes a big makes a big difference really. Um, and that that
1: that seems to work for me um, through through my career. And Tesco's has obviously grew enormously and you yeah. you uh, you initiated uh Club Card. Well Club Card was initiated by Tesco's and yeah. Tesco's finest I series of other The business did I was around um, at that time yeah. But then there was, the, there was the hiccup of the US. Just what do you feel about that?
0: No, look, I think that uh, we, we we had this sort of... Uh, I mean, uh, so in 31 years, I've kind of seen it all, really. So, you know, when I first joined, we were distant number two to J Sainsbury, and we were close to being overtaken by Safeway, which no longer exists anymore. It's part of... It was taken over by Morrison. So we, we weren't in great... We weren't in a particularly great shape at, the, at that time um and uh and and but i saw under a sort of new strategy uh under lord mclaurin you know about how we were going to expand outtown superstores some real um some real sort of uh, change in our fortunes and then that was built on um incredibly by uh sir terry leahy who who, who really took on the customer agenda in an amazing way, where, where there was Club Card and Finest and Express and Online. All those things happened under Terry's tenure. And in 1995, we overtook Sainsbury's to be number one, and, uh, and that sort of gave us great momentum. And we never looked back. And I think the 10 years after that were the golden years. Almost anything we did, everything we touched went well, and we were the darlings of uh, the press, of the customers, and that sort of thing. All, all of that happened. And I think. You know we we were we were constantly we, we felt like we could turn our hands to anything that our brand could stretch to anything. and um, and I'm not saying we didn't go through the usual rigor that we would have done uh, during those sort of ten years, but some of the things that have worked for us um, suddenly stopped working for us and uh, and things became more difficult. And uh, we probably at that point started to look more internally rather than focus on the customer. And that's when, it started to go wrong really, and I think uh, in any business at any time you have to keep focused on your customer. The customer is definitely king. I know it's a cliche, but it's absolutely true. And you only do, and you only as good as the last um, time that they engage with you. And therefore, how do you you know how do you keep focused on being good at what you do every day? Focused on customers and making sure that you look after your assets to deliver for customers. And of course, our number one asset and I don't like to call them that because it's not very uh, personal, but our number one assets are our colleagues, you know, 290,000 of them here in the UK, you know, with the biggest private sector employer, our business is about people. It's people serving people, um, even in this digital world. Therefore, I think, um, you know, that's incredibly important. So, uh, and we probably just, you know, kind of got distracted away from that as we were trying to sort out some of the things that hadn't gone as well as, as, as had done previously. Um, so, yeah, we went into the US, spent a lot of money going into it. And then um, I think uh, Philip Clark took over from Terry Lee. He took us out of it again. And then and then Dave Lewis after that sort of got us out of some of the other um, markets that we were in just to make sure, you know, because we had to, because of the, you know, the situation we found ourselves in financially in order to sort of affect our turnaround. Hmm.
1: So now to your third piece of music. And this is one that you know how to say better than I know how to say. So your third piece of music is?
0: Oh, yeah. So so um, at the moment, I'm listening to Led Zeppelin a lot, which sounds a bit odd because, you know, they're, a, they're around in the sort of uh, 60s and 70s. But I think they're just such an amazing... Am- you know, they, they change the face of music. They're one of those bands that change the face of music. And the more you listen to them, the better they get. And uh, right now I'm listening to the third album, Led Zeppelin 3, and my favourite track in it, uh, I might not even pronounce it correctly, it's the name of the farmhouse they recorded the album in, it's Bronny Or Stomp, is what it's called. And the reason I love it is because it's got a real energy to it. I'm spending a lot of time, through lockdown i spent a lot of time walking, uh, out and about, taking my daily exercise, and i found myself walking... A lot more than i ever have and this is a piece of music i listen to because it helps me to um it kind of just goes where you, you walk faster you feel better and uh it provide, again it gives energy so i like i like music that that gives me energy and and uh and that particular track does at the moment i'll play it to death so i end up playing things to death and then sort of moving on to the next thing so uh, yeah that's the one i'm listening to at the moment
1: but well, one thing you're obviously not going to move on from is your commitment to ESG, environmental, social, and, and governance procedures. Just tell us about how important that is to Tesco, and what does it actually mean in practice?
0: Yeah, so I think look, I, 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 I'm glad we're we're having this conversation now because just um, just a, a two or three weeks ago, at our interim um, update, to, uh, financial update to the city, we announced our. We revised our core purpose so our our core purpose was was to serve our shoppers a little better every day and we've we've now evolved it to be to serve our customers communities and planet a little better every day so effectively we're we're doing what our customers and our colleagues expect us to which is to be a responsible business in today's society not just in service of Our customers and our shareholders but also the communities in which we live work and serve and uh, the planet that you know serves us so therefore we need to you know us along with every other business individual government society needs to step forward to face into what we know to be the biggest um crisis of our times you know i know right now we're sat here with you know covid um still um still with us uh supply chain challenges brexit all of those things are immediate crises but actually the biggest immediate crisis is the one of 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 our of our planet and and the climate within it so so, it's, so, so we're putting it out there we're putting it there. so f therefore we have a real obligation to deliver against that and and we've always we've always um we've always uh, had had a strong agenda in that in, in that space anyway, and we're moving it forward um, as we do. And I could, I could talk a lot about the planet now, you know, commitment to net zero by 2035, the fact that we're rolling out more electric charging points than anybody else across the country to 2,400, the fact that we've taken our food waste down by 42% since our baseline, the fact that, you know, 100% of our energy in all of our business here in the UK is from renewable sources, not just certificated so so there's lots that we're doing in that space I think the one that that uh, or the element of, um, of of the agenda that's that's really uh, been important to me personally has been the one around inclusivity and diversity and you know when you when you are um, responsible for over two hundred and ninety thousand colleagues when those colleagues um, as I, as I've said come you know we 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 are present in every community in in the UK, and we have colleagues that um, live and work in every community in the UK. In order for us to do a brilliant job for them, for our customers and our colleagues, we have to make sure that we're an inclusive business in order to be able to understand and make the decisions that we need to make uh, in that way. So... The last uh, couple of years, we've really sort of stepped up our agenda with exec sponsorship, with mentor, mentee program, with you know all the things that you, w- you would expect, Michael, that we would say we would have the processes in place around talent spotting, recruitment, development, listening, and it's starting to bear fruit in a way that I'm really pleased about. But one of the things that, uh, I'm actually the exec sponsor, uh, for race and ethnicity uh, for Tesco. The story that I've been able to tell to you is this sort of working working class boy made good, defying the odds. What I've learned over the last couple of years is that I'm, I've been a bit deluded in that, that regard. Yes, it's an achievement, but actually I've had many of the cards stacked in my favor, even though it hadn't felt like that on the way through. And that really came home to me through uh, the mentee uh, mentorship program that we had in place. I, um, I worked, well, this is how we met. I worked, I, I ended up being matched with a young man from Dulwich in South London, Samuel of Nigerian Heritage, and getting to know him on a very personal level and understanding what it takes, what it's like to be a young black adult in our society, particularly coming from a... Tough part of the capital, and and what you what you have to do in order to be able to to get yourself in a place that you can find a pathway out, um, it, particularly through the sort of pathway that I've been able to enjoy through business, is is simply incredible. And whilst I can never live that experience, the insight and the candour and the openness that Samuel and in fact some of his friends and some of the other uh, mentees have uh, shared with me have made me realize how, how, you know, we live in this, uh, our society, which is systemically racist, and, it's hundreds, and that's hundreds of years embedded. And, you know, in order to make a difference, we have to think about it. I have to think about it every day. I have to reach into our organization and reach into our business every day. And I have to literally, you know, pull, metaphorically pull people through or make a difference in that very... Um, interventionist way because I'm fighting a system that has been built over hundreds of years and I make no apology for that internally either you know I think it's in order to make a difference you absolutely have to do that and um, on the one hand it's, it's been incredibly sobering and humbling to be able to learn from Samuel it's also been incredibly frustrating because you think you know all the progress you want to make you can't make as quickly as you want to make. It's almost a bit like my, um, my role as exec sponsor here is, is, you know, it's more than a sponsorship for me. This is now part of my role, part of my role description alongside, you know, running the UK and Ireland business, delivering the P&L, all the governance around all that. I actually see it as part key part of my job to make sure we move this forward. And we've had some, made some really good recent appointments to help you know, to help sort of demonstrate to the business that we're serious about this and that, you know, there are people that, one of the big bits of feedback I get is it's not, another, not enough people around here that look like me or sound like me or, you know, I can relate to and, and doing more of that is, um, is what we've been focused on. It's a massive opportunity and really important for us as, as a business and a leading business that everybody has an experience of and has a view about
1: and being the you know the biggest employer outside of the government in the country, I know that you you are a fantastic mentor to to Samuel, and uh, he speaks so highly of you, the great insights you've brought to him. Your heart is clearly wide open, and you've got the executive responsibility in the business and at the moment, you don't have any black executive directors. How do you think you can, can how, how do you think you can correct and advance that when you've got Asian directors that's a good thing how can you advance the black executive roles?
0: well uh, I I think it's it's become a bit of a lightning rod for me because um, I actually think uh, 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 the the, the need if we can if we can get the if we can start to create a pipeline of people into senior roles um, from our uh, black uh, colleague community that that will actually mean that we'll Will make a bigger difference overall because i feel as though that community is more behind any other community in our business you know it, it, when i'm looking at um, minority and ethnic groups and um and therefore actually our focus my, or my focus has not been of course it is there's an overall focus to make sure we get we get people through the business into senior roles that then mean that other people join us or or, or 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 can believe that they can they can make a career and, and move through the business in Tesco, um, but actually it's a, it, the, the very positive in- interventions around black colleagues. We, we've recently appointed our first uh, black director in our um, in our store network, the first one ever. Now and uh, Freddie and Freddie, um, it's been it's almost a year after I wanted it to happen, but that is because we're determined to make sure that now he's appointed, he's best equipped to be able to succeed. This is not about appointing people because of their skin color. It's actually about, point, uh, about developing people to be ready for bigger and bigger jobs in Tesco so they can succeed and become, um, uh, and become uh, great contributors to our business and, and also inspirational to um, other people that look like them within our business. And I think that that that's really important to us. So I'm absolutely delighted we've mm. got Freddie into that position. Um, it's actually, in, in one sense, it's a big step for us, and the other, in the other sense, it's a small step for us because now we need to have people who sit on our you know, operating boards and on our executive committee who are black. And that's the sort of that's the next that's the next target. And by the way. There are there are a number of other people that are coming through that, and, and Freddie soon won't be alone. I, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced of that. But it's um, you uh, 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 I don't want to go out and hire someone, um, just to sort of tick a box. Uh, what well, I'm absolutely keen to do. Going back to this point around this is a systemic problem that we face, and therefore, how do we create something that is sustain? How do we create solutions that are sustainable by making sure that we we have people who are qualified, developed, experienced enough to succeed and continue to succeed in our business um, on a, you know, human being level, I think is incredibly important for us. Um, much, much, well, that's much, a statement of great today.
1: progress. And, and clearly, you are absolutely rigidly committed to it. It's, it's in your DNA. So just lastly, we ask all of our guess if they make a pledge for the future. It can be about absolutely anything. It could be very personal, very organizational, very national. What would you in the forefront of your mind like to pledge to commit to?
0: Um, in, in in any sense at all, Michael? Or is it in is any it sense at all? Anything of any nature. My desire, ambition, pledge if you like, is to ensure that I um uh I end up with a black colleague alongside me. Uh, helping me run the UK on our UK operating board, and when I achieve that, I'll be uh, I'll be
1: uh, the happiest man in Tesco. Jason, thank you. You really are quite remarkable, and so open and warm and honest. Thank you so much for joining us today. Sadly, we've got to wrap it up at that point. I know this episode is going to stick with us for a very long time. Please join us next time on the BBI's You're on Mute where we hear from another icon, a business leader, a famous personality. Until then, please subscribe, review, leave your feedback wherever you get your podcast from. If you're a leader and would like to share your journey and opinions on social justice and a fairer society, please contact us at info at Until the next time, goodbye and thank you for being with us.